Father in heaven, as we enter into the season of Advent, as we enter into this Christmas um, season, I pray, Lord, that you would do something in our homes and in our hearts and in our, our spiritual walk with your son, Jesus, that would make this Christmas unique and special. Not that we need it to be unique and not even that we need it to be special, but that we do want our relationship with you to be fresh and to be new and to be growing. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would teach us things about this holiday. You would teach us to hope and to long and to expect for the second coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that this Christmas season will be a time where you would speak into each of our hearts that we really must long for Jesus or else we're longing for the wrong things. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hope is a very, very powerful word probably one of the most powerful words there is. I mean, if words have power, and I believe they do, then hope might be the most powerful word. But let me explain to you what I mean. Let's say you're having a bad week. You're depressed. You're sad. You've lost your job. Something's going wrong in your life, and you're just hopeless. You're slouched. You're slumped. A friend can call you or come alongside you and say, but don't you know there's still hope? And I believe that just the sound of that word would begin to produce at least a little bit of hope in your heart. Do you, do you agree with that? At least a little bit. You start to see a little light at the end of the tunnel because hope is a powerful word. In fact, great leaders have used the word to move masses of people over time. For instance, Martin Luther King said that everything that is done in the world is done from hope. And he led masses of people to change the world. Our president, Barack Obama, started a campaign on hope and change. And before he started that campaign, he wrote a book entitled The Audacity of Hope. I think the word hope is a powerful word. But not only a powerful word, but really a powerful reality. If you have hope, you can do amazing things. Men have done great things just because of their hope. For instance, the Wright brothers, they would have never figured out how to fly if they didn't have this hope that they could fly. Who doesn't want to fly? The Wright brothers wanted to, and they had this hope, we can do it, and they were able to accomplish it. So hope is a powerful word, and it's a powerful reality. And so this series is entitled Jesus, Hope for Humanity, and it's just two weeks long, and what I want to do is study the word hope, and my hope is, no pun intended, that we would grow in our own hope, and that we would, our lives would be changed by this ginormous hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Today, I want to look at the word hope, and I want to ask three questions about the word. First question I want to ask is, why is hope so important? What's the big deal? Second is, what does it mean? What does the word hope mean? And then thirdly, I want to ask, how should hope affect the way we live, or how should it change the way we live? So three questions, why, what, and how? Why is it important? What is it? And how should it affect the way that we live. Are you, are you ready to do that? Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, may the eyes of your hearts be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has been called, to which you have been called. And so that's the thesis, that's the thrust, that's the point, that's my goal, that's my hope for this little series. And so let's look at why is hope so important? Now, hope's important, it's vital. Hope is as vital to the soul as food is to the body. Did you hear that? Hope is as vital to the soul as food is to the body. If you deprive the body of food, you'll die. 
And if you deprive the soul of hope, you'll, you'll die as well. You need hope to survive. You could probably think of examples of people who, when they lost hope, just lost the will to fight, lost the will to live. In fact, psychological and medical journals have stated that hopelessness can be a cause of death and heart attack and even cancer. Can you believe that? For instance, this article here from the American Psychosomatic Society, I wanted you to hear the title of this journal article. Hopelessness and risk of mortality and incidence of myocardial infraction and cancer. That's the title of the paper. They could have said that a lot better, I think. Glad I'm not a doctor. This is what the conclusion of that whole study was. Hopelessness is a strong predictor of adverse health outcomes independent of, of depression and traditional risk factors. So not people who are depressed, not people who have high cholesterol, just people who lose hope. It's a high predictor that they'll die. Without hope, you cannot live. If you take hope away from a person, well, first of all, they're either gonna lose the will to live and die or they're gonna get mad and fight you for their hope back. They'll do weird things. If you back someone in the corner and remove all hope, they'll do weird, crazy things, don't you think? Hope is vital. It's vital. Do we live in a hopeless world? Right now, the Billy Graham Association is launching a new campaign called My Hope. Their hope is to spread the gospel and put the gospel in every home. I got these statistics from one of their training seminars. It says that if you lived in a community with 100 people in it, here's what your neighbors would look like. Seven of them would be struggling with depression and even contemplating suicide. That's really... Seven out of 100 are thinking about committing suicide? Seven abuse or addicted to drugs or alcohol. And honestly speaking, I think that's a lot higher. I think that statistic's wrong. You think that's low? No, that's what I'm saying. I think it should be more like 50. Yeah. Matter of fact, my, my father-in-law's FBI, and he says, oh, yeah, that's, you know, pot and, 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 and drugs and alcohol are all over the place. But the chief of police in St. Charles County has said heroin, believe it or not, is a huge problem in the St. Charles area, and I, did, I didn't realize that. So I don't think, I think it's more than seven. 60 people in your, in your community, if you have a community of 100 people, don't profess to be born again. That's a lot. <laughs> 14 feel crippled or trapped by fear and anxiety. Three are grieving the death of a loved one, and eight are struggling with the loss of a job. Are people without hope? Do they need hope? If it's vital, then I think they do. Now, despite the fact that hope is vital, we got to know what it is. And I think just by the way we use the term, we convolute what it really means. We don't even really understand the word in our English. Let me give you some examples. There's actually two kinds of hopes, and this is important. There's human hope. And there's biblical hope. And those two things are completely different. Human hope is really a, a wish or a want or a desire. Human hope sounds like this. Well, I hope it rains today. And there's really no certainty about that. In fact, it almost sounds like there's a lot of uncertainty to that, right? I hope it rains today. If your kids ever say, I hope we get a snow day this week, what they really sound like they're saying to me is, we probably won't, but I hope that we will. So I think that the way that we use the word hope is almost like a negative thing, not a positive thing. If someone asks you, are you sure about that? You might say, well, no, but I, I hope so. That doesn't sound very positive to me. It sounds like, it's like a wish. It's a wing on a prayer. It's a shot in the dark. It's not, there's no certainty to human hope at all. Now, biblical hope is completely opposite of that. 
Biblical hope is certainty. Biblical hope is a reality that already exists and you're waiting for it. In fact, in the Bible, both in Hebrew, that's the Old Testament, and in Greek, that's the New Testament, the word hope is synonymous with the words faith and trust. Did you know that? It's essentially the same word. In fact, John Piper said that hope is faith in the future tense. It's the same thing. It's faith for a future thing. The author of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things. What's that word? Hoped for the convictions of things not seen. So faith is believing, not believing, being sure of something that you're hoping for. Faith is hope in the future tense. It is a reality. It is certain. It comes to you from a God who cannot lie. And so you know it's true. You can bank on it. And so hope, there's two kinds of hope. Human hope, which is uncertain, and biblical hope, which is absolutely certain. Now, of course, we're going to talk about biblical hope, right? But before we do, I want to talk about human hope. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of people in the world who don't have hope of Jesus, right? 60% of your neighbors, apparently, um, they don't have Jesus. So they don't have biblical hope, but they do have human hope. They have to or they wouldn't be alive, right? So, so there is such a thing as human hope, and I want to analyze human hopes just for a few minutes. Scholars will tell you that within human hope, there's two kinds of human hopes. This is interesting to me. There's little hopes, and then there's big hopes. Everybody has little hopes. And a little hope is that thing that just gets you through the day or the week. It's the thing that you're hoping for. Well, I'm just hoping for Friday. You know what I mean? TGIF, man. That's, that's all I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for maybe, you know, a new iOS for my iPod, <laughs> one that works a little better, you know? I'm just hoping that she'll pay attention to me today. I'm just hoping that I might get a raise. I'm, I'm hoping someone will notice how hard I'm working and pay me a compliment. They're just these little bitty hopes. They're characterized mostly by personal or material or relational things. I want a new TV. I hope, for, I, hope I get one for Christmas. I want um, a raise. I hope I get that bonus. I want someone to like me. I hope she will. <laughs> Big hopes, on the other hand, are completely different, and I think they're pretty scarce. One scholar says that hope is essentially a fire that burns in your belly, and that fire is what gives you the gumption to go. It's like, a, it's like the coal thing in, the, in a train. You know what I mean? You throw the coal in there. And it, you got a little hope. Okay, so get me through the week because Friday's coming. Or you got a big hope that burns in your guts until it kills you. People with big hopes want to change the world. This scholar said, um, great hopes, excuse me, slow down. Great hopes look far beyond personal goals towards global transformation. People with huge hope, with huge fires in their guts, want to change the world. Dr. Martin Luther King said that everything that is done in the world is done in hope, and he shows us how much hope he has. Maybe you've heard this speech, I have a dream today. Did you hear that speech? I was going to do it for you. Can I do it for you? I have a dream today. Actually, I thought it would be better if I just let you hear it from him. And the word of the Lord shall be 
see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Did you notice how the reverend used the word hope and faith interchangeably, almost as if he didn't do it on purpose? He says, with this hope, this happens. With this faith, this happens. With this hope, I go, we're going to build this. And with this faith, we're going back to the South. He uses those terms. Inter- he was a pastor. You know, he knew his Greek and Hebrew. He knows that hope is faith. I mean, faith is hope in the future tense. And he had a massive hope. Do you ever wonder, I wonder, why is it that so few people have great hopes? I think there's a scarcity of great hopes in the world. There's a very few men and women who change the world and who want to. This fire that's burning them, they can't sleep. They just want to do it. They would give their life. I want a hope like that. I want the kind of hope that burns in my guts that I'd be willing to die for and I'd definitely be willing to live for. Can I get a what what? Thank you. Singer-songwriter Seal said, in a world full of people, only some want to fly. You know the song? Isn't that crazy? Crazy. In a world full of people, only some of us have great hopes. What's wrong? That's crazy. He goes on to say in that song, if we're ever going to survive, we've got to get a little crazy. I love Seal, I'll tell you. (laughs) I've always loved this song. I want to go crazy. I want to go for broke. I want a fire that burns inside me that's powerful, you know? Not a little fire. I don't want to raise. I don't want an iPod. I want to change the world. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, cool. We need great hopes. One author says, only a great hope can give meaning and satisfaction to life. To live without a hope plugged into a, listen to this, to live without a hope plugged into a meaningful future denies the deepest longings of the human heart and it deprives life of all real meaning. Whoa. If you don't have a big hope, you don't have hope. If you have only little hopes that aren't plugged into a meaningful future, they're worthless. So what if you get an iPod? I got one once. It broke. You know what I mean? You, you, you have little hopes. They're not, they don't have any meaning. If you don't have hope that's plugged into a meaningful future, it's denying your deepest longing as a human. You want to go a little crazy, don't you? I think that might be why Paul was able to say in Ephesians that we were without hope and without God in the world. I mean, surely he knew that those Romans, those Ephesians had some hope, right? They had hope, you know, maybe for a new pair of sandals, hope for a new, you know, leader, new king, new iPod. They had hopes, but Paul says your hopes were meaningless. You were without hope until you had God. There's a scarcity, I think, of great hopes, and there's a plethora of little small hopes. America is good at teaching us that all we really want is one more little thing. And it's not a hope at all. I wanted to ask this question. Maybe we can discuss this in our table discussions. 
That's actually more than one question. I realize that. Is there a scarcity of great hope? Discuss that. Let me know if you agree or disagree with me. Is your hope a small hope or a great hope? Uh Uh-oh, getting a little vulnerable there. Hey, let's get a little more vulnerable. What are you hoping for? What is it that you're hoping for? And here's a real good question. What if it never happens? What if this thing you're hoping for never comes to be? So that's three, four questions. So discuss whichever one is most on your heart right now in three minutes. And you brought up Christmas, and um, biblical hope is really rooted in what we talk about at Christmas. During the Advent season, you hear the word hope a lot. In fact, if you grew up in a traditional church that had Advent candles, can I see your hands if you guys grew up with Advent? Okay, I loved Advent. Um, I still do love Advent. It's not a past term thing. I love Advent. Um, the first candle of Advent is the hope candle. And so you read lots of verses about hope, and you hear the hopes and fears of all the years were met in thee tonight. It's, it's, it's a hope-filled season because we're longing and we're waiting for something that we're sure will happen. Jesus will come. He, Advent means waiting and coming. He's coming. And so what is biblical hope? It's completely different than human hope. It's rooted in God. The Bible says here in Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Our hope is rooted in a promise from a God who cannot lie. If God promises something, then you can count that it's going to happen, right? If he says, I will send my son and he will save you, then in the Old Testament, they hoped they were waiting. They were, see, the people were groping in darkness. I've seen a great light, Isaiah chapter 11. So they were waiting for this small child, this baby, for unto us a child is born, and they knew it would come. And when it came, it was good. Now we're on the other side of that, and we're hoping for a very similar thing, and it's from the promise of a God who cannot lie. And so hope in the biblical sense is surety. It's certainty. You already have it. It's already a reality. So you're not wishing, wishing, hoping. Well, you're, not, you're not doing that. It's real. It's there. This is the text I want to camp on tonight. This is the Ephesians chapter 1. is sometimes called the hope chapter. Listen to this verse. Pay close attention to the words of the verse. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see or hear the words that surround the word hope? They're powerfully absolute. I mean, you just got to hear these words. Words like inheritance. If you have an inheritance, it's yours. If you're the rightful heir of an inheritance, it's already yours. You're just waiting for the day that you get it right? And no one can take it from you. Someone might try to take it from you, but it's always rightfully yours, but not yet. It's an inheritance, and your will get it. You've been predestined. Now, we could go all night with this word, right? If it's been predestined, can anyone take it from you? If it's been predestined, can it be removed? Can it be changed? Can God change his mind? No, it's predestined. Whatever this is that's been from the foundations of the earth, according to God's purpose. We're talking about being plugged into a meaningful purpose. How about God's purpose? I mean, does it get any bigger and more meaningful than that? 
God's purpose, which was from his, the counsel of his own will. I want that purpose, don't you? Let's get plugged into that. So that then we have this hope in Christ. We also have a guarantee. Did you see that? You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. So if an inheritance wasn't enough, we now have a guarantee. Does that sound absolute? It does. It's a guarantee. <laughs> I like guarantees. I don't like to pay extra for guarantees, but I like to have guarantees. And then finally, this guarantee is for the inheritance. Again, big word. And one day we will acquire possession of it. Do you hear all this absoluteness surrounding the word hope? When you have hope in Jesus, there's a lot of absolutes that cannot go away. Jesus, God's only son, the second person of the Trinity, would leave, would separate from that triune God and come to earth as a baby. Who would kill a baby? Herod tried, but who else would kill a baby? No one. But this baby lived a perfect life, perfectly so he could pay for our sin. See, a perfect person can pay for an imperfect sin. An imperfect person can't pay for an imperfect person's sin. Does that make sense? I like the way Spurgeon says it. If I am being summoned to be in the army, right? If I've been drafted and you've been drafted, I can't take your place. <laughs> We're both drafted. But if I've not been drafted and you've been drafted, I could take your place. If we're all required to pay the penalty of sin and death, then I can't pay for your penalty. I've got to pay for mine, which is death. You only get one death, by the way. But because Jesus was perfect, he could pay the penalties, all deaths, all sins. And so Jesus died to ransom us, to pay for us, to purchase your very soul. Think about this. If God loves you so much that he would send his son to die a horrific death, to pay for you, to purchase your soul and make you an adopted son or daughter, that's a lot, right? You know he loves you, right? If he loves you that much, how much more is waiting for you in this inheritance that you have a guarantee? If God the Father would send his son to die for you, what's it going to be like when we meet him face to face? If he loves us that much, and it's something that we hope for and cannot see, how much will it be when we can see it? One of these days, we're going to feel the love more than we already do. If God loves us that much, what's he preparing for us for our future? Is it huge? Seems like it is. Jesus says, it is. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't have told you so. We have a huge hope. Now, in the Bible, okay, so yeah, let me, let me say this. We know why it's important, right? Everyone needs it. We know what it is, human, biblical, biblical, certain, it's gonna happen. Now we have to answer the question, how does it change the way we live? If you have this hope burning in you, that's great and magnificent. It's an inheritance, it's a guarantee. Should that change the way you live your life? I would submit that it should. <laughs> One scholar said this, in the Bible, hope, and this is important. This is very important for Christians to hear, I think. In the Bible, hope is never a static or a passive thing. It's dynamic. It's active. In fact, as a side note, in 1 Peter, Peter calls it a living hope, a lively hope. We'll talk about that next week. It's directive and life-sustaining. In other words, a biblical hope is not an escape from reality or from problems. It doesn't leave us idle, drifting, or just rocking on the front porch. If our hope is biblical and based on God's promises, it will put us into gear. I want to say, say fifth gear. And I think this is an important quote because biblical hope, this hope for our future inheritance, is not an excuse for us to sit on the front porch and rock and say, well, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come. 
sweet by and by. This life, well, there's a better one not coming. <laughs> so I'm just going to get on with the grind, pay my taxes, send my kids to school, and retire until Jesus doth come return. Right? How many Christians live like that? Jesus doesn't want us to live like that. He didn't say, just hang tight, I'm coming back. <laughs> That's not what he said at all. Biblical hope is active. It's lively. It's, it's got a lot of fire burning. You can't just sit on the couch. You can't just sit on the porch. It's got to put you into gear to accomplish world transformational kinds of things. If you believe in it, if it's real, it will change you. Timothy Keller, one of my favorite writers, said, we are hope-based creatures. What we believe or what we hope for actually affects the way we live. Okay, so I want to show you something interesting. Remember how we just looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 through, I think it was 16? Now I want to look at verse 17, and listen to what Paul, Paul says here to the Ephesians. He says, he's praying a prayer, and he says, my prayer is this, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen to this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So here's my interesting thought. Why is Paul praying that the Ephesians would get wisdom, would have a revelation, would acquire knowledge, and would have their eyes opened to this thing called hope from which they've been called. The reason why I'm asking the question is because Paul's already told them that they had the hope. Remember in, in, the, in just the, the verse before, it said, you know, you've attained this inheritance, having been predestined, blah, 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 so that we were the first to hope in Christ. They've already hoped in Christ. If you're a Christian, it's because you've put your hope in Christ. If you're a Christian, it's because you put your faith, your trust, your future hope in Christ. And so you've already put your hope in Christ. You already got the hope, right? But now Paul's saying, but I'm praying that your eyes will be open so that you'll know with wisdom and knowledge and revelation what this hope is. Isn't that interesting? Why does Paul have to do that? I'll tell you why I think. I think because as Christians... We have the hope of Jesus. We have the hope of the gospel. Sometimes we're still hopeless. Am I right? Sometimes we put our hope, probably all the time, we put our hopes on those little hopes. And because those little hopes are never sure, and because those little hopes don't plug us into a meaningful future, we're always hopeless about those hopes. Does that make sense? So we have this hope of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But then we get entangled in all these little meaningless hopes that leave us hopeless. And so Paul's saying, I want your eyes to be opened. No, wait, not your eyes. Did you hear what he said? The eyes of what? The eyes of your heart. What does that mean? Well, if the heart is the seat of your soul, right, the center of who you are, the core, we say the heart of the matter, right, the heart of the man. If I say, oh, my heart, you know, I have a heart for missions, that means the thing that drives me the most is missions. If I say, I have a heart for, you know, hot wings that burns in me when I eat it, you know what I mean? Then that's the heart of who I am. So Paul says, the heart of who you are, the core, the soul, I want it to know the wisdom, the revelation, the knowledge of this hope. I want it to be the thing that's burning inside of you. 
Not that you say, okay, I have hope in Jesus, but that that thing is lit up inside of you and it burns your guts. That's what Paul's saying, and I think, in the modern English. He wants their guts to be burned by this hope. He goes on to say more. He's going to add more to our hope. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? You want to tap yourself into some future meaningful hope? Well, God's got a big hope. And just in case you're feeling hopeless about that, and you shouldn't, he's got a lot of power, immeasurable might. The same might that raised Jesus from the dead and then placed him above every name. God has that power, and he's given it to you. He's given it to you. It's in you, and it's burning. And Paul's saying, I just want you to see that. If you can just see that, what would that do to you? If you can just know that you are, you're a king and you're a queen, you, you, you're heirs of a king, which means you're a prince and a princess. You've been predestined for royalty. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You have power. You have a guaranteed Holy Spirit. You've got a massive fire burning in you, and you don't even know it because your eyes of your hearts is closed or it's distracted by hot wings and iPods. Amen? If we had this kind of hope, how would it change the way we live? What would it do to us? I, I have an illustration. Again, I want to steal it from Timothy Keller. This illustration helps me a lot. I hope it helps you too. Let's, let's just imagine there's two people who work in a job. Say, say it's a factory. It's a plant, right? These two people, let's call them people A and people B, right? Person A and person B. Man A and man B. They have the exact same job. Exact same lighting, exact same temperature, exact same clothing, you know, dress code, exact same chair, everything. Everything's the same for them. A and B, same job. They're button pushers at a factory, you know, like Homer Simpson, whatever. Um, person A is told this by his boss. If you work hard at this, at the end of the year for all your hard work, we're going to give you $20,000. But person B is told this. At the end of the year, after all your hard work, we're going to give you $2 billion. Is there a difference between the way person A will work and the way person B will work? Oh, yeah, okay, let's don't let them talk to each other. <laughs> person A would say, this job sucks. I hate it. I can't even get up in the morning. This is redonkulous. Person B would say, I don't think it's that bad, actually. <laughs> I mean, all I got to do is stick this here and stick that there, and I'm going to walk home and get $2 billion. I think I'm having the best job in the world. Person A says, I have no idea what I'm doing. Person B says, I don't care. I'm getting $2 billion. Person A is frustrated and not performing well. Person B is whistling while he works. You and I aren't working for $20,000. We're not living for $20,000. We're living for the hope of glory. We're living for the hope of the gospel. We're living for the lively hope of Jesus Christ. We've been plugged into a massive fire. And so technically speaking, the way that it should affect the way we work is we should whistle while we work. It's not that bad. I, I can put up with these people because I got a bigger thing coming. 
a better thing is coming. I'm not doing it for this. I'm doing it for him, and he's the hope that I have. So the question I want to ask is, how could this hope, if, it's, if you believe it, the eyes of your heart has been opened, how would it change the way you live today? Does the eyes of your heart need to be enlightened to this hope? Maybe it's something that's been, you've been distracted from. So two questions. How will it change you today? And has it, has it changed you? Or, or do your, does your heart need to be opened? Well, here's an interesting thing. I opened this evening by saying hope is a powerful word. And just the word hope can produce in you hope. If you hear hope, it can make you feel hopeful. So now I'm wondering, now that we know what biblical hope is, if you keep hearing about biblical hope, is it working? Is it already developing hope in you? And, and, and if not, I've got some more verses. I, I think it would be good if what you did this week, since we're only going to have a two-week series on hope, this is hope part one. Hope part two is next week. We're going to talk about what our, where our hope is going and what we're doing with that hope and what God really wants us to do with it. Um, but maybe for the next seven days, you can just do a word search in your Bible for the word hope and read all of those verses now training your eyes and your mind to see the word hope, not as a wish or a wing on a prayer, but an absolute certainty that's already there. That rhymed. I think you can do that. Do you have a Bible software program? Do you have a smartphone? You just got to search the word hope. Sometimes you'll see human hopes. You know, Paul says, hey, I hope to see you on my way to Spain. But sometimes you'll hear, a lot of times, most of the time, you'll hear biblical hope. And if you can start training your eye to say, this is faith in the future tense. It's already there. It's already promised. It's mine now. Here's a few verses I want you to hear as just practice together. I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. That's from Isaiah chapter eight. I like this one. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I like this verse because Paul's saying we have hope in this life, right? So if, if in Christ we have hope in this life, that's a big deal. Paul says, then we're most to be pitied. <laughs> yeah, there's more. There's more. Not just in this life, but more. Um, Hebrews 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises of God. Isn't that awesome? Don't be sluggish. Don't be intimidated. Think of Abraham. Think of Moses. Think of Jonah. They trusted in God. They had hope that was real, and they received it when they believed it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Those are just a few. If you did what I did and just searched the word hope, you'll find 99.7 verses, I think. And if you read those this week, I think it will start to, what'd you say, pump you with hope. I think it could. I think it could. You know, Jesus, when he lived on this earth, he gathered around with his disciples and he, and he, and he, and he said something to them. And I love what he said to them. He said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. I've always loved that verse because Jesus walked with his disciples, we assume, for about three years, so he probably had at least two Passovers already with him. But he said, I earnestly desire to have this one with you. 
As we've been walking, as I've been teaching, as I've been healing, as I've been, um, um, you know, slapping the Pharisees around, I have always, always been earnestly hoping for this day when I could share this Passover with you. And so then what he did was he took the bread and he took the cup. And it says this, he took the cup and when he had given thanks to God, he said, take this, divide it amongst yourself. Listen to this word. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I accidentally skipped the bread part. He said the same thing with the bread. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so from the beginning, when, when, when Christ institutes his communion, institutes the Eucharist, if you will, he says, I want you to do this as often as you gather to remember me and remember what I've done for you. Remember that I've adopted you as mine. But until I see you again in heaven, I'm going to fast from the bread and from the wine. Because Jesus is still hoping for something. Jesus is still waiting for something that's already his, and that's you. He already owns you, but he's still waiting for the day where you could sit around the table with him and do it again. Doesn't that blow you away? The season of Advent is about longing, hopeful expectation. In Isaiah and in the Old Testament, they were longing for Jesus. They were longing for this baby. They were longing for the root of Jesse. And in the New Testament, we're still longing too. We're longing for the second coming of Jesus. He said, I'm coming back. And until I do, I'm not going to eat or drink of this bread or of this cup because I'm waiting and hoping for you. I want to commune with you. But until then, do it as often as you gather. So tonight, we're going to take communion as we sing and as we worship, and as we pray. The Bible says we should confess our sins, maybe even confess our small hopes. Lord, I put my hopes in all the wrong places. Give me a big hope, Father. And maybe we should um, take this communion and reflect and fast and pray, Lord, what am I really hoping for? Am I hoping for your second coming? Do I even want you to come back? If the Mayans are right, he's coming back next week, by the way. Do I, do I even want you to come back? No, not until I get that iPod, right? Not until I get that new, you know, my debt paid off. Not until my, I see my kids off to college. He says, I'm not, I'm not gonna eat it until I eat it with you. Would you pray with me? Oh. Father, I, I, I cannot even pretend that I know what I'm talking about up here. That, that, there, that there is a lot here that I've, I, I don't think that it, we get, I get. That you love us so much that you would give your son, that you love us so much that Christ would die on the cross that you've given us more than just salvation. You've given us a hope, the greatest hope that a person could ever have, a hope that's so big we can't even wrap our minds around it, a hope that's so huge that you have to open the eyes of our hearts to see it. And I'm just floored by the fact that Jesus who loves me, Jesus who loves us is hoping for the same thing. He's longing for the day that we can gather together around the table. That makes me want to live for something a little differently than I have been living. That makes me want to pursue your son, Jesus, more than I've pursued him. I pray, Lord, that as we take this communion, 
as we sing these songs reflecting on Christmas, on the coming of Jesus, and as we go home and as we do our traditions, as we wrap presents, as we send cards, as we invite people over for dinner, I pray, Lord, that you would burn this fire in our guts for a, a massive hope that would transform the entire globe, that you've put us here for a purpose, a huge purpose, that you've destined us. I pray, Lord, that this Christmas will be the time, the season in which we experience that more than we ever have. And I ask these things in his name.